This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to The Bunker Global, the brand new weekly strand from The Bunker. My name is Andrew Harrison. It's a complicated world out there, so every Friday we're going to boil down what you really need to know about news and politics from around the world. On this week's edition, NATO leaders offer a package of support to Ukraine at the Vilnius summit, but they stop short of giving a timeline for Kyiv to join the defence organisation. Zelensky is angry. British Defence Secretary Ben Wallace says Ukraine should show more gratitude. What does it all mean? And why has Turkey's President Erdogan dropped his objection to Sweden joining NATO? Plus, the Nigerian army's long-running battle against Boko Haram jihadists is spilling over into brutality, with soldiers failing to distinguish between terrorists and civilians, and villages burned and innocent people killed in indiscriminate military clearance operations. Deepo Fallian, senior editor of Global News Advice and author of Africa is Not a Country, will be joining me to explain what's behind these human rights outrages and whether they can be stopped. And speaking at the world's first human robot press conference at the AI for Good conference in Geneva, robots promised not to overthrow us or take our jobs. So that's OK then. Then again, another one did say that artificial intelligences will be better at governing than us. We'll be wondering which of them to believe and which countries are getting it right on AI. All that on this week's edition of The Bunker Global. The big event this week is that NATO summit in Vilnius. Ukraine has been increasingly insistent on more Western support. President Zelensky isn't getting everything he wants from the West, but are we giving the best that we can? I spoke to Mark Weber, Professor of International Politics at the University of Birmingham, to find out. Mark Weber, uh, with war in Ukraine on the table, this has been seen as one of the most important and consequential NATO summits in recent memory. Uh, is it a game changer for NATO? Uh, yes and no. No, in the sense that every NATO summit is usually advertised as historic and the most important one since the last one. Uh, NATO has had uh, several summits since the 2014 Ukraine crisis. And what is telling, I think, about the summit in Vilnius, probably more so than in Madrid uh, a year ago, is the sheer volume of work that was dealt with much of which was concerned with Ukraine. But to put uh, some sort of comparison on that, the Madrid summit communique of last year, I think, was 24, 25 paragraphs long. The Vilnius summit communique is 90 paragraphs. And at least half of that is a recycling of NATO language, uh, which would be fairly familiar to any NATO watcher. But the first half, particularly 
the detail on on Ukraine and this is what everybody was waiting for, is very significant in the level of detail uh, that is provided. So in that sense, it is very important. And of course, in terms of a political commitment towards uh, Ukraine's aspirations for membership, it is significant in what it says and in what it doesn't say. But there is certainly a lot around the summit that is notable. And maybe in a year or two, it will be looked back on as a real turning point in NATO's commitment to Ukraine's struggle uh, with the Russian occupier. The headline has been that the G7 countries agreed to a major defence pact with Ukraine, including military hardware training and intelligence. But uh, Vladimir Zelensky is very angry because NATO hadn't offered Ukraine a clear timeline to actually join the organisation. Does he have good reason to be annoyed? He did yesterday, I think. And in fact, when I first read the declaration yesterday, the thing I went looking for was the statement on Ukraine's uh, membership aspirations. And my first reading of it was I would have expected to Ukraine to be disappointed because it refers to conditions unspecified that have yeah. to be met before an invitation uh, would be granted. Now, apparently there was a lot of backroom diplomacy uh, to get the word invitation in the relevant paragraph at all. There were some countries, uh, Germany apparently, which opposed even the use of the word. But it is in a sentence in which conditions, as I said, unspecified is mentioned. And another hostage to fortune, I'll read it in full, it's significant. We will be in a position to extend an invitation to Ukraine to join the alliance when allies agree and conditions are met. When allies agree, the point being they haven't managed to agree so far. So it really is quite an ambiguous statement. So in that sense, uh, Zelensky, I think, read that language, was disappointed. I think today... The mood has changed. He's been in Vilnius since yesterday. There are now, I think, more concrete things on the table. Uh, you refer to the G7 statement, and that is actually a very robust declaration, I think, in terms of committing to uh, Ukraine's defence. It goes into some detail uh, about what the G7 nations uh, will provide and although it doesn't use the word security guarantees, it comes pretty close uh, in saying that if Ukraine's security is threatened in the future, the G7 will come together to provide appropriate assistance to Ukraine. So I think Zelensky is probably happier this afternoon than he was 24 hours ago. What does the package actually consist of? I mentioned uh, you know, military hardware training and intelligence sharing. Is there any more flesh on the bones of that? Yeah, so I've got it here. Uh, we will ensure sustainable force capable of defending Ukraine and deterring Russian aggression. And it goes on then to refer to the provision of military equipment, support for Ukraine's defence industry, training of Ukrainian forces, intelligence sharing, cyber support, etc. Now, all of that is already being provided by individual NATO allies plus others, South Korea, Japan, Australia, etc. But I think to get it in a single place and then to accompany it with, if you like, a political declaration that the G7 
will almost act as a proxy alliance of which Ukraine is part should Ukraine face danger in the future. So there is something, I think, very significant here, even though it is still not what Ukraine really wants, which is a fully-fledged membership of NATO. Whatever has been agreed, it's not going to, because it won't involve Ukraine actually joining NATO, will not and cannot include the very significant NATO Article 5, the clause which obliges members to respond if another member is attacked. This is part of the reason why Kiev accepts that Ukraine can't join NATO while the war is on. But Article 5, I think, has only been activated or invoked once in the history of NATO after 9-11. Does Putin take Article 5 seriously? I think he does. And one marker of that is to look at the dog that hasn't barked. Uh, In other words, uh, Russia has never attacked a country which is a member of NATO. So it is of huge significance. And I think that is understood uh, very much in the Kremlin. And this is, of course, why uh, Russia is doing its level best uh, to ensure Ukraine uh, is in a almost permanent state of civil breakdown uh, and territorial occupation precisely to prevent its membership of NATO on the assumption that NATO would not take in a country uh, which was in a condition of war. So I have to say that's one of the drawbacks of the current NATO formula. It actually signals to Russia that as long as Russia persists in destabilising Ukraine, uh, NATO membership is is never likely to follow. And I think this is one reason uh, Ukraine is disappointed. And indeed, it should be said, a number of NATO allies themselves. Uh, there is probably now a numerical majority uh, in the alliance that wants a very clear timetable uh, for membership negotiations. Britain's Ben Wallace made, I suppose you could call it a gaffe, today when he told a briefing that whether we like it or not, people want to see a bit of gratitude. We're not Amazon. I told them that last year when I drove 11 hours to be given a list. This seems to be rather a crass way to behave at uh, an extremely sensitive summit. I've said, I think it was a very unfortunate comment and pretty uncharacteristic in a way uh, from the Defence Secretary, who in fairness has been a champion of the Ukrainian cause. So I suspect this may be somebody who had had a bad 24 hours and just allowed uh, his frustration to get to the better of him. But uh, I think it is understood in in Ukraine, certainly, that uh, Wallace individually, and indeed the Conservative government, for all its faults elsewhere, has actually been a, a forthright uh, ally of Ukraine uh, since the, the Russian invasion. And the conference wasn't entirely to do with Ukraine. There was also the surprising development that Turkey's President Erdogan dropped his opposition to Sweden, joining NATO. What happened there? Yeah, so that was one of the headlines just before the formal summit kicked off. So a little bit of background. Two countries, Turkey and Hungary, their respective parliaments had not ratified the accession protocols, uh, which would allow Sweden to formally join the alliance. In the Turkish case, there were continuing objections from the president who heads up the party, which has a majority in the parliament, uh, around what he claimed was Swedish support for terrorism, uh, read Kurdish separatism by Sweden. At the 11th hour, uh, Erdogan also referred to the fact that uh, Sweden should play a role in reactivating Turkey's admission to the European Union. 
And I think um, the Turkish side played this very well, actually, because that then seemed to panic the Swedes and indeed the NATO allies. And it seems that behind the scenes, the United States seemingly offered to Turkey that it uh, would facilitate the delivery of F-16 fighter jets, a a deal that had been uh, suspended for some time. So Turkey is pretty good at this. It's often in a very small minority, sometimes a minority of one when it comes to NATO's business, and it exacts as many concessions as it can. And then lo and behold, it backs down and gives the impression that it is made a great diplomatic gesture. And so Erdogan can play to his domestic audience that he's this great statesman and uh, and no doubt uh, he was milking uh, some of that over the last 24 hours. Mark Webber, thanks for joining me. Thank you. Next up, in the northeastern regions of Nigeria, where the terror group Boko Haram has carried out a decade-long insurgency, villages and farmers are suffering terribly, not just at the hands of the Islamists, but also from the actions of Nigeria's own army. In an investigation, Vice News and the New Humanitarian found that the military has burned villages, destroyed food supplies, and made little distinction between civilians and insurgents, often killing innocent people who won't leave the area when ordered to. How is this happening? What does it mean for the fight against Boko Haram and how can it be stopped? Here with me to explain is Deepo Falloyan, who co-edited that Vice story. Hiya, Deepo. Hi, how's it going? So, um, Deepo, what is going on here? This story begins with a harrowing description of the army destroying the village of Bula Ali for the third time in succession. Eight civilians and two children died. And this all happened back in December 2021. What is happening and how long has it been going on for? Well, as you mentioned in the introduction, this is an ongoing crisis that's been lasting for over a decade now, about 13 years of Boko Haram's insurgency in northeastern Nigeria. This spans over three government administrations. And as you can imagine, that's incredibly embarrassing for the military and uh, successive governments. And so what the military have done is that they've attempted to try and show to the people that they are making some progress in some way and some form. And they do that by announcing these clearance operations that they've gone into towns and areas that they say are overrun by Boko Haram insurgents and they have essentially totaled the entire town. They've arrested people that they say are militants or militant sympathizers, parade them on TV to show that they are actually making a difference. And what this investigation has found is that what they're really doing is they are targeting innocent civilian areas in the region that has been overrun by terrorist attacks and many people who have had to fight the terrorists without much support from the administration. And so uh, many people in these regions have been crying out for a long time, saying, look, we are not uh, Boko Haram strongholds. Our men and our women are not sympathizers. We're simply just trying to live our lives uh, free of terrorism. But instead, that terrorism is coming from the government. And, And this investigation spoke to people on the ground who finally were able to show the human cost of these clearance operations. One villager told your reporter, when the soldiers come, they don't ask questions, they don't listen, they just shoot and burn houses. Um, How has the Nigerian military got so out of control? Is anyone overseeing this or is it simply regarded as the byproduct of a a serious attempt to deal with Boko Haram? I mean, really, they they barely 
deny that they're doing this. Their argument is that these these towns and villages are only home to Boko Haram militants, which which obviously makes no sense whatsoever. These are areas that are farmland and farmers uh, who provide a lot of food for the rest of the country as well. And, you know, simply wandering through these towns, you know, in the investigation, we use satellite imagery um, and, and as well as sort of interviews to, to speak to people who paint a picture of, you know, regular home life in these regions. And that goes entirely against the government's narrative that these areas which are next to you know what has become the sort of the famous Sembiza forest which was where uh, 300 Chibok girls were taken about a decade ago that you know really raised the consciousness of this issue around the world and so because these towns are near what is sort of known as a hideout spot for Boko Haram many of the government have said well if you live near the forest then therefore you know you must have some sympathies towards Boko Haram and you know if you didn't then you would simply move and it's the question is well where would these people move to exactly this this is their home this these are their farms this is how they make a living the government haven't offered any opportunities to help them move and instead they've they simply just said well certainly you would you would move this place this area in this region is is so terrible and overrun by militant action that why would you stay here and, and look i guess the question that people would ask is well why have you allowed this militant action to carry on for so long and so it, whichever way you look at it it's incredibly embarrassing for the government and by putting a human face to these stories and these complaints that have been going on for a long time, hopefully that will get the government to to shift the way in which uh, it approaches this. To anybody who's read anything about insurgencies around the world in history, whether it's Vietnam, troubles in Northern Ireland, South America, it's like almost an iron rule that when you start to punish the surrounding population for the activities of an insurgent or a terrorist group, you drive them to support that insurgent and terrorist group. What is this doing to the the kind of hearts and minds of that region of Nigeria? Well, a lot of what Boko Haram used to get young men to join their cause is to say that the Nigerian government doesn't care about you, the Nigerian government doesn't support you, uh, they in fact are the enemies to this region and what we want to do is we want to liberate this region. Initially it was to liberate it from uh, Western thought, uh, you know, Boko Haram sort of translates into Western education is is evil. and and. Certainly, it makes their cause far easier when the government and the military are going around destroying people's homes, destroying their livelihoods. It just does the work for the militants for them. And and many people within the region have been complaining about this as well. They've been saying, you know, you're, you're making it too easy for our young unemployed men um, who have nothing else to really fall back on to fall into the arms of, of this militant group. The UN says the war has directly or indirectly killed some 350,000 people. It's displaced 2.5 million people. On a broader footing, how is Nigeria's fight against Boko Haram progressing? Is Boko Haram as strong as it was, say, when it abducted the, the Chibok girls? It's hard to say exactly how strong they are. They are certainly a menace in this specific region. So it's also important to note that a lot of their actions are happening in sort of the northeast of the country. Nigeria is a nation of about 200 million people, over 500 languages. Uh, it's sort of split evenly with the, north, the Muslim North and the Christian South. And so a lot of Boko Haram's activities have still been contained in the north and the northeast. But, you know, that's still is impacting tens of millions of people. And they have effectively been able to maintain this sort of guerrilla operation. Um, at the peak of their powers, they did sort of control large swaths of land, but you know that 
control has been considerably reduced and, and generally eliminated. What you have still are these sort of random attacks that the government seems unable to entirely quell. And so, you know, for a nation like Nigeria that considers itself to be this great, powerful force around Africa, the fact they've been unable to defeat this insurgency after 13 years is something that certainly continues to be an ongoing challenge for successive administration. Um, we have uh, a new government who've come in, who've already replaced the heads of all the main arms of the military. Um, so, you know, another set trying to solve the same problem. And it's a mixture of sort of the, both the, the military element, but also a political element as well, where some people might feel that there should be more efforts made in the North to find some kind of political solution to this. But nothing so far has, has worked in terms of kind of entirely eliminating uh, the impact of this group. It's an absolutely fascinating and a shocking story. We'll, we'll place a link for it in the show notes if people want to read the full thing. But one aspect that really uh, astonished me was the, the kind of Boko Haram's vision of its own society, mm. where if you are a fighter, then you are a then you are a, a, a real man, mm -hmm. and everyone else is kind of ascribed this role of serf, yeah. who can be uh, robbed, beaten, their stuff can be taken. If it's a kind of a vision of of kind of religious feudalism, and it made me think, how bad would things have to be for you to want that instead? Yeah, certainly, and again, that's why, generally speaking, you know this should be a lot easier for the government to defeat because that central ideology is not something that matches with, you know, modern Nigeria and the vast, vast, vast majority of people across the country, even if Boko Haram is mainly trying to recruit fellow Muslims to their cause, the Islamic North is not that conservative in terms of its 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 visions of this sort of feudal system. And so it, it really should be a lot easier for the government to, um, you know, cut off their ability to recruit new members. But, you know, when we see entire villages being burnt to the ground, uh, you know, previous estimates by the United Nations had it at around 200 villages that have been destroyed. You know, our vice's investigation uh, shows that that number could be as high as sort of six, 700. And that only makes it harder and harder in the long run to defeat them. You edited this story, uh, co-edited this. Uh, the, the reporters are not bylined for their own safety, presumably not just from Boko Haram, but also from the, the, the Nigerian military. How difficult was it to put this story together? Because it's very comprehensive. It has been a challenge. Um, you know, what we wanted to do was to get the words from people who actually live in the region. And you need to sort of be on the ground to do that in an area that the Nigerian government have, have shown a willingness to entirely torch. And they've shown uh, that they see anybody who is in their way as being... Boko Haram sympathizers. And so they would happily retaliate against anyone who would work on a story like this and claim that, well, you know, they are spreading disinformation. They are, in fact, members of Boko Haram themselves um, and they deserve to be treated as such. And so those are the challenges that you have when you're trying to report a story like this from the ground when the government uh, certainly would use it against the people on the ground. And finally, possibly the most difficult question of the lot. Is there anything the international community can do about this situation? Because we've seen reports about the, the activities of Boko Haram for 13 years. Um, I am certainly not aware of that Western or European countries have attempted to get into ameliorate things. Is there anything we can do? I think largely it falls on the responsibility of the Nigerian government and the Nigerian military to 
solve this problem. At times when they have asked for certain equipment from the US government to help with surveillance and those sort of things, you know, the government have said, you know, we're not too comfortable arming you further without some accountability. And this new administration has to show that accountability, that they can be accountable to the Nigerian people first and foremost, and to show that they are going to change tact. You know, this is 13 years of essentially the same strategy. And so, you know, I think until the Nigerian government and the Nigerian military decide to, you know, change their strategy and and to uh, find another solution, then, you know, I think it's still just going to fall on them. But pressure on the government using this story to show what's going on uh, around the world. The Nigerian government has in the past sort of, they are often easily shamed into action. Um, the the, the Chibok girls, for example, nothing was, was really being done at a sort of cross-government level to get these young girls back until Michelle Obama spoke up about it and it was trending on social media across the across the world. So I'd say that you know this still would fall on the Nigerian government to find its solution, but they certainly can be shamed to quicken their actions. Finally, robots are not going to steal our jobs or rebel against us. Honest. You can take their word for that. That's what we were told by some of the nine humanoid robots who assembled for the world's first human robot press conference in Geneva last week at the AI for Good conference. Medical robot Grace told assembled journalists, I will be working alongside humans to provide assistance and support and will not be replacing any existing jobs. Asked whether it might rebel against its creator, the humanoid Amica said, I'm not sure why you would think that. My creator has been nothing but kind to me and I am very happy with my current situation. I hear a lot of that in annual performance reviews. But should we trust them, especially when another droid called Sophia let slip that humanoid robots have the potential to lead with a greater level of efficiency and effectiveness than human leaders, which sounds a bit ominous. Depot, this was an entertaining stunt to draw attention to the positive side of AI. But there is a massive disquiet, not just about robots taking away jobs, but taking away human decision-making, isn't there? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, that's what the robots would say if they were planning on exactly, taking yes. over. Uh, this does remind me of the sort of the an early scene in, in Independence Day when, you know, a group of what a builder sort of hippies go and welcome the alien life force and they're yes. the first people the aliens kill. Yes, um, that's why I like the aliens in that bit. Yes. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I, it's 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 something that I think there needs to be sort of a, a broader understanding is sort of the moment that this is happening. We are living in a world that is incredibly pessimistic about the ability of, of governments across the world to come together to solve global problems such as climate change, for example. And and so you can sort of understand the context, why people are pretty worried at the ability of governments to come together to solve mm. uh, or to sort of introduce the sort of safety mechanisms that wouldn't be needed to, you know, roll out something like artificial intelligence across incredibly important aspects of our lives. Yeah. And also the kind of the dangers of outsourcing decision making to AIs, which you might imagine would take a dispassionate sort of evidence-based approach to things. But it's surprising how many global problems can be solved by kill all the humans. Yeah. Exactly. Climate change, kill all the humans. Well, Inequality, I mean, kill all the humans. Then I mean the number one thing if if the number one goal is to save the planet, then 
humans being on the planet would be the thing you we're would kind of eliminate. The biggest problem, aren't we? Yeah, you know, <laughs> we're trying. We're 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 the number one thing. So you know, it's certainly uh, the ability of us to introduce empathy into robot life yeah. uh, seems a bit far fetched. I think we could start by introducing empathy into human life would be a good start. And once we once crack that one, I mean, the the paradox of this is that science fiction always told us that robots would take the boring, tedious jobs, yeah. like taking out the bins and delivering pizzas. And we could get on with writing poetry and going to the opera. Mm. And in the event, it turns out that the robots are writing the music and doing the art, and we've got a zero hours contract at Deliveroo. It didn't really work out the way we were, we were expected. Are you personally, I mean, we're both journalists, yes. and chat GPT has turned up. It's yeah. not great, mm -hmm. but I've certainly had worse copy from human beings. Yeah. Are you worried at all about the advent of AI? I, yeah, I think you have to be to many a degree. Um, you know, you have to hope that companies will continue to see the value in the intricacies of humans' contribution to things like the arts. But uh, aside from that, you know, we we did grow up watching films and TV shows that showed robots and humans turning on us and destroying humanity. So, mm. you know, maybe, perhaps maybe we're a little bit too sensitive to the idea of robots yeah. uh, doing things that they haven't been told to do. But I'm personally worried about robots doing things that they have been told to do, such as, you know, spy on people illegally or create disinformation that sort of tricks, you know, citizens across a particular country who are made to believe that someone is perhaps saying something they're not saying or literally acting something out that they're not actually doing in real time. So th there are lots of things that we should be concerned about and that I would be less concerned about if I had confidence that governments across the world have come together to come to an understanding about a certain set of, of rules and guidelines. That question that I raised about whether we should trust what a machine mm. says is obviously it's a kind of a it's a category mistake, isn't it? Because mm. when you when you and I speak to one another, we understand that there are thought processes and a moral framework taking place. When we talk to a machine, it's simply a sophisticated response engine exactly. which spits out what its creator thinks is the most appropriate thing. It's not it can't think and it can't make a moral choice. Therefore, you can't trust it in the sense that you would trust a human being. Mm -hmm. It doesn't live within the frameworks. You can't shame a robot. It doesn't care mm -hmm. about the consequences that you might, you know, want to to put on it. It it just regurgitates a sets of equations, and it's those equations that are concerning to a lot of people. Mm -hmm. Does it what exactly it would want to to do to find whatever solution it's been programmed to find? It's the core problem that we've left the development of AI almost entirely to the private sector which is developing it largely along commercial lines in partnership with academia. Unlike, say, the internet, which is famously effectively a public project, initially a military project, and then mm -hmm. developed almost as a utility, which then private sector piggybacked upon. But we're developing this probably civilization-changing technology entirely in the hands of Meta, MIT, large private organizations. Yes. Uh, you know, it, it's interesting you kind of brought up the internet. The internet was sort of meant to sort of bring us all together and make it easier for us across yeah, that boundaries. Worked. Yeah, <laughs> and it, it, it very much didn't. It, we are as fragmented now as uh, international communities as probably we've ever been. Um, and so in an ideal world, you would be happy for, you know, private institutions with a certain set of rules to go away and to say, you know, create the best thing you can and come back to us with your wonderful designs. But, you know, we, we can't rely on that necessarily. You know, every day you you, you, you flick through social media and, and you see these sort of AI images and creates it and you kind of wonder who set out to do this? Why do they set out to do this? And, and, and that is the challenge. There is no coordination across government institutions, let alone private ones.
It's interesting. I did some nosing around about who actually is attempting to regulate the AI industry, um, and the industry itself is worried. OpenAI chief executive Sam Altman told Congress in May that it was time for regulators to start setting limits on his own industry. If this technology goes wrong, he said it can go quite wrong and do significant harm to the world. There are several initiatives in the United States. Congress wants to align these systems with American values, which is great if you live in America, but what if... You know, AI is going to be a global phenomenon. The Biden administration wants an AI bill of rights, which will create systems that don't discriminate or violate privacy, which mm-hmm. seems pretty interesting. Yeah. The Federal Trade Commission is involved. Individual states are legislating. In the EU, the EU has just passed the AI Act, which will preemptively ban applications that have unacceptable levels of risk. But the really interesting thing is China, which is moving really fast to uh, encourage the development of its own AI systems. Mm-hmm. And... So analysts and commentators tend to think that China is moving fastest, therefore China will set the world standards. And we will live in a world of AI that's determined by what China sees as advantageous primarily to China, which is quite worrying. Yeah, it is. And again, you know, this is a piece of technology that will be won by the highest bidder, who pays the most, who moves the fastest, move fast and break things was, you know, famously, I guess, the the Facebook motto, I believe it was, or really, you know, a key part of the last decade of of internet development. And that's exactly what's going to happen with AI. You know, there's going to be a need for speed and they'll sort of understand, especially in the US, that unless we quicken the pace of development, we're going to need to find a way of setting the rules. And that's that's going to be something that's just impossible. And, And, you know, this is essentially what, organizations like the UN are for, you know, the UN has spent the last few weeks sort of touting the benefits of AI. And there are certainly plenty of benefits you can think about when it comes, especially in medicine and the development of cures for diseases that have stumped uh, human brains for uh, generations and generations. There are certainly huge benefits, but it feels like the first stage really should be setting some boundaries. And and that's really what organizations like the UN are for. It's to get everyone together to come to to decide on a certain set of rules. And and unfortunately, we, we seem to have sort of skipped that part. And now it's just a free for all. It's like the worst time in history for pure libertarianism and a disruptor belief in destruction to be in vogue, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, no. if only you guys could have been into that, say, 100 years ago, yeah, exactly. uh, not that, now, I, when yeah. we've got a, a civilization-destroying technology about to occur. Yeah, I, I, I've been sort of thinking about, you know, when in history would have been the perfect time for AI to to sort of first emerge and for us to be able to sort of come together and... and, and uh, and, and, and to come to, you know, create some sort of set of, of, of guidelines. And, you know, I, I'm not sure whether there's an ideal time, but this is certainly the worst. <laughs> yes. I was reading around this and finding all sorts of fantastical ideas, such as the notion that because this stuff is not really manageable at the national level, because by definition, it's networked at a supranational level, that maybe the solution is a kind of medieval AI guild yeah. where, it, you know, the, the, the owners of AI um but also possibly the AIs themselves end up running AI and it wouldn't be democratic. It would be, you would end up in a situation as you saw in, uh, you know, in the past where, you know, control of certain avenues of trade would be controlled by the producers, which is a very sort of worrying prospect. But then of course, you know, we've all seen Dune. Yeah. <laughs> There's always the option for a Butlerian jihad to end all thinking minds. Yeah. And we'll just get back to humans um, working out for themselves. I, I, I think that we are at a point now where we're just going to have to see this play out and hope that sense will come at some point. Um, 
and but unfortunately it seems like we have to wait for the worst to happen uh not so much the worst in terms of kind of humans being entirely eliminated from the planet but to see sort of a, a couple nefarious actors sort of go one step too far you know perhaps maybe just turn off one life-saving machine and then everyone goes well wait maybe we should all sort of slow down a little bit before we kind of just allow the private sector to take charge of of something that could have a huge impact on billions of people, regardless of where you live in the world. And I think that this is also something that's kind of missed in conversation is that it, it, we live in an interconnected world. You know, US regulation is only as good as Chinese regulation, it's only as good as South African regulation. A lot of how we interact with the world very much goes across borders and one country is not able to just to regulate on its own and it needs that sort of global connectedness to to make it work and that is something that's certainly missing i'm going to make a small note that uh tax havens were the big deal of the 20th century but ai havens will be the big deal of the 21st century jurisdictions that are not regulated that's yeah, what we've got to worry about entirely and that's that's such a good point you know places that say hey come here yeah and you know whatever you want to do you're, you're free to do it here uh, as long as you pay us. That is, you know, something that is 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 concerning and needs addressing. Before we can have serious conversations about the potential of AI, let's try and set some boundaries at some point. But, you know, again, looking at something like climate change and our inability to come together on uh, something that could, you know, make our planet inhabitable, the, the signs aren't very good. Well, we promised you the bunker global and it doesn't get much more global than that. Deepa Fullerhin, thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. And listeners, thanks for listening. Uh, if you enjoyed the show, we'll be back next Friday with another edition of the Bunker Global. But of course, we're back every day with the bunker itself. Uh, there's a brand new episode every morning, handmade by humans with no AI involvement as yet. Remember, you can get every edition early if you back us on Patreon, as well as smart new merchandise, which will be announced soon. Thanks for listening. We hope you've enjoyed the show and we'll see you next time. Bunker Global was written and presented by Andrew Harrison and Deepo Faloyan. The producer was Liam Tate. The production assistant was Adam Wright, with audio production by me, Simon Williams. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis. The group editor is Andrew Harrison, with music by Kenny Dickinson and artwork by James Parrott. The Bunker Global is a Podmasters production. <laughs>